In Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, in the early 20th century, tuberculosis killed between 10 and 14% of the population, the most of any disease at the time. 1882 saw a peak, with deaths from tuberculosis hitting 14.1%, the highest percentage reached between 1870 and 1920. The endemic nature of the disease in Milwaukee and in larger contemporary cities meant that although tuberculosis was a leading cause of death, it was one that citizens were able to anticipate and grow accustomed to and thus did not become a public health priority. The push for public health policies that would control the spread of disease was not as rapid or as highly prioritized as policies that controlled more epidemic diseases such as cholera or smallpox. As the population of Milwaukee grew, so did the prevalence of tuberculosis and other diseases that thrive in urban cities. Spread by air droplets when an infected person coughs, tuberculosis runs rampant through any city where people are living in close quarters. In the case of Milwaukee in the early 1900s, this meant that the immigrant population was most directly affected. Milwaukee was quickly urbanizing and was an attractive hub for those looking for work. By 1850, 64% of the population of Milwaukee had been born abroad. Crowded into unheated housing with several other people or families and forced to work long hours of hard labor, immigrants were set up to lose. While the newly immigrated provided a lot of the services that were needed to keep the city growing, anti-immigrant sentiment was particularly high during this time period. The Immigration Act of 1891 stated that a person could not be admitted to the country if, quote, suffering from a loathsome or dangerous contagious disease, close quote. This meant that potential immigration into the country was defined by health and pathology, and exclusion and deportation were very real possibilities based upon the port inspections by the U.S. Public Health Services, USPHS. While the intention of this act was to protect the country's citizens from diseases that they had not developed immunity to yet, the reality of it was that it stigmatized the newly immigrated as potential carriers for dangerous diseases. Kraut, in their 1994 work, traces back the bias against immigrants in our country to these early laws. The Immigration Act and the resulting inspections by the USPHS promoted the idea that foreigners were dangerous, disease-ridden, and something to be fought against as they tried to gain entry into our country. The decision of whether or not to let a person enter the U.S. was supported by the, quote, loathsome or dangerous contagious disease, close quote, verbiage. But at the time, the medical tools available to USPHS officials could not conclusively provide a specific diagnosis. Consequently, diseased became synonymous with being dirty, extreme poverty, or holding any number of religious or political beliefs that the USPHS decided were unworthy. This became more relevant as the years went on. In the 1910s, public health officials began excluding people of poor physique, which oftentimes meant those of Eastern European origin, including Jews. Tuberculosis, of course, was one of the diseases that public health officials were trying to keep out of U.S. ports of entry. This was nearly impossible, as it was so prevalent during those years that even if a person was no longer showing symptoms, it was highly likely that they had the latent disease. In 
When infected with Mycobacterium tuberculosis, a person does not always exhibit symptoms but can hold the bacterium in reservoir. Part of why this occurs is due to the ability of Mycobacterium tuberculosis to avoid detection in the body by inhibiting the lytic properties of macrophages and by avoiding intracellular destruction. This can occur in two ways. In the first case, a person can become infected with tuberculosis and show active symptoms which then decline, but instead of actively clearing the disease, the bacteria will still be present in the body. In the second case, a person can come into contact with active tuberculosis, but their immune system is strong enough to suppress the symptoms. A person can stay in a stage of latent tuberculosis infection for years and never go into an active disease phase. The second example, where a person comes into contact with tuberculosis and immediately acquire latent infection, is more common for healthy immunocompetent adults. It is usually people at the extremes of the age range or those who are in a state of poor health to begin with that will immediately show symptoms of active disease. Though tuberculosis was not a new disease during the later part of the 19th century, the concept of it as infectious was new due to the work of Robert Koch, who identified the Mycobacterium tuberculosis bacillus. Prior to Koch identifying the bacterium in the 1880s, tuberculosis had been thought to be a hereditary disorder. When it was discovered that was, this was not the case, a kind of panic set in, and the efforts to quarantine those suffering from the disease increased. The immigrants who made it into the country despite these challenges and found themselves living in Milwaukee County, unfortunately found that the anti-immigrant sentiment was not limited to the USPHS officials at Ellis Island. While tuberculosis, as well as any other infectious disease, respects no boundaries of age, sex, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status, for the newly immigrated who were living in tight quarters with no access to health care and with terrible working conditions, tuberculosis was more common than in the general population. For anyone, but particularly immigrants, who found themselves at the Milwaukee County Hospital and the other buildings that made up the Milwaukee County Poor Farm, all these factors combined with abject poverty and complete loss of social status only made a bad situation worse. Tuberculosis sanitariums became common throughout the country, including Meerdale in Milwaukee County, as a safe place for tuberculosis patients to rehabilitate away from the general population. When tuberculosis is in its active disease state, it causes respiratory distress, including coughing, wheezing, bloody sputum, and chest pain, as well as fatigue, weight loss, and general weakening of the body. Death from the disease usually comes in the form of pneumonia, wherein the lungs are too full of fluid and bacteria to keep functioning properly. Though less common, neurological symptoms are also possible, especially when POTS disease is present. POTS disease, being tuberculosis of the spine. Due to the compression of the spinal nerves and the spinal cord caused by the angulation of the vertebrae and the deterioration of the intervertebral discs, lack of sensation, loss of movement, and pain are all possible symptoms. This could cause what is sometimes referred to as POTS paraplegia. Compression paraplegia oftentimes first appears as a loss of motor function due to the location of the motor fibers in conjunction with the spinal cord. When the tubercular lesions are present on the anterior aspects of the vertebrae, 
which is the most common place for them to show, the pressure would first be exerted upon the cerebral spinal fluid. The buildup of this compression and pressure from the anterior aspects leads to displacement of the anterior motor fibers. Drainage of this fluid can alleviate this pressure, though it cannot reverse the effects entirely. Treatment for tuberculosis at the time was typically a combination of fresh air, sunshine, rest, and isolation. Thus, the tuberculosis sanitarium was created. A less common method of treatment was surgery. While surgery was expensive and unusual if the disease progressed into Pott's disease, one option was to perform a procedure invented by Dr. Fred H. Albee in 1909, in which the intervertebral joints were immobilized in order to allow ankylosis. Oftentimes during this procedure, a bone graft taken from the patient's own tibia was used to allow bracing of the joints. This had the added benefit of grafting additional blood vessels into the area and allowing blood to flow to the severely damaged bone. The drawbacks of the surgery were numerous. The risk of infection from surgery in a pre-antibiotic era were particularly abundant and the outcomes could be especially grim. During the last quarter of the 19th century, the health profile of Milwaukee County citizens was typical for a large industrial city of the time. The last major cholera outbreak had occurred in 1854 and a smallpox outbreak had occurred in 1869. A permanent health department was created in 1869, making Milwaukee one of the first cities in America with a specialized health department. Despite this, the first 10 years after the department's creation saw slow change, most of which was focused on policies for the prevention of smallpox and was characterized by a lot of disagreement between the public health board, the Milwaukee government, and the citizens of Milwaukee regarding best health practices. The public health department focused its early efforts on encouraging smallpox vaccination and on isolating sufferers in the pest house on the west side of the city, the latter of these efforts meeting with significant backlash due to the inability to work while confined, the social implications of having to be quarantined, and the high death rate once forced into the pest house. The German immigrant population was particularly resistant to the idea of vaccination, and this contributed to the already growing division between the German immigrants and the rest of Milwaukee County. In her book, The Healthiest City, Milwaukee and the Politics of Health Reform, Judith Leavitt shares the story of a young boy who was diagnosed with smallpox. The community grew so angry about the city government's attempt to remove the boy from his house and place him under quarantine at the pest house that a mob of some 2,000 people gathered and refused the county health officials access to the boy and his family. Such were the feelings of the community at the time regarding the city's and county's efforts to treat or isolate those who were infected with infectious diseases. Contributing to the already tense atmosphere surrounding mandatory public health procedures, in 1878, the head of the health department began a crusade against tuberculosis that met with significant backlash. Like many public health crusades today, there were also people who directly opposed the legislation and implementation of citywide health procedures for their own benefit. This began the era in Milwaukee County that is referred to as the Milk Wars due to the opposition that came from the dairy industry. Mycobacterium tuberculosis and other members of the Mycobacterium tuberculosis complex 
most notably Mycobacterium bovis, can infect cattle. This occurs particularly frequently in unsanitary conditions. Both the city of Milwaukee and the surrounding farmland relied heavily on the dairy and cattle industry. While farms flourished in the countryside, animal husbandry was not restricted to the outlying areas, and several dairies were set up in the city of Milwaukee proper. The conditions of Milwaukee dairies in 1878 were particularly unsanitary. Leavitt describes public health and newspaper reports of those years, describing these urban farms as littered with animal waste and dead animals. Moreover, the animals that were used at the dairy were all in close proximity in small yards behind city dwellings. The milk delivery system at the time was a large jug that a person would cart to houses by horse, into which the individual homeowners would dip their previously used milk jugs by hand. For 30 years, between 1878 and 1908, the health department and its various directors had slowly passed laws regulating the conditions of dairy cows and the practices of milk handling in the face of significant public backlash. It was not until 1908 that the city finally passed a tuberculosis campaign for disease prevention, mostly aimed at the dairy industry, but the campaign saw little success for the next five years. The plan that the health department proposed in 1911 required mandatory reporting of tuberculosis cases, as well as home health care by trained nurses. 1913 saw the passing of a law that required tuberculosis testing for all dairy cows, and by 1916, both testing and pasteurization of milk was required. During this long interval of political debate, tuberculosis continued to flourish in Milwaukee County. Between the years of 1911 and 1915, Milwaukee County reported that 27% of all cases of tuberculosis occurred in the poor areas of the city. An article from the Milwaukee Journal, dated November 21, 1915, announces the opening of Muirdale. Muirdale Sanitarium was built on the Milwaukee County poor farm grounds. The poor farm, which started with the donation of a 160-acre farm from Hendrick Gregg, a member of the Milwaukee County Board, was located in the town of Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, approximately seven miles west of the city of Milwaukee. Prior to 1852, the city of Milwaukee had been focused on outdoor relief, which consisted of providing the poor with food, firewood, and temporary lodging. In November of 1852, the first 24 residents moved into the farm, and Milwaukee County began its indoor relief project for the poor. Four years later, in 1856, Milwaukee County added a small school next to the main building for the purpose of educating the children who lived on the property. In 1860, the first county hospital was constructed on the poor farm grounds. Prior to 1860, quote, the poor, the sick, the orphans, and the insane shared the same living quarters, close quote. Milwaukee Sentinel, May 28, 1856. After numerous complaints about the conditions of the poor farm buildings, 1868 saw the construction of a new hospital on the grounds. This led to the separation of the sick from the rest of the poor farm residents. 
Prior to the opening of Muirdale, tuberculosis patients in the city of Milwaukee had the option of recuperating at the Blue Mound Sanatorium for incipient tuberculosis, which was in operation between 1907 and 1921. Before the creation of the Blue Mound Sanatorium, tuberculosis patients were housed either in the hospital or in one of the other buildings that were part of the poor farm complex. An article from 1924 tells the story of how Milwaukee was able to secure funding for the construction of Muirdale, including, interestingly and ironically, the fact that the great state of Wisconsin has plenty of milk, which is known to play a part in the cure of tuberculosis. Muirdale Sanitarium treated both the wealthy and the poor, and accepted tuberculosis patients free of charge if they accepted the designation of pauper. Those with the designation of pauper were more likely to be buried in the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery, as accepting this designation meant that they signed away their rights as private citizens and all of their worldly possessions. According to Crafer in 1907, quote, Section 1505A, Chapter 136, Laws of 1899, provides that if at the time a person received poor relief, he or she possessed any property, the amount of the relief afforded shall be a valid claim against said person and may be recovered in an action at law by the political unit granting the relief." Close quote. Few would accept being designated as paupers if they had any family in the area or the country that could help rehabilitate them or at the very least bury them. Burial in a pauper cemetery was considered an absolute last resort, and people were known to live in poverty in order to save for a proper church burial. Not only was the burial itself minimal, with a plain grave marker and burial in shrouds, but it was not assured that the grave would remain undisturbed. When Wisconsin had still been a territory, the original territory laws stipulated the need for decent burial for the poor, according to the laws of 1838. This did not, however, stipulate what was included in a decent burial. The Milwaukee County Rules and Regulations for the County Farm and Almshouse that were published in 1894 stipulated what constituted a proper burial and how they were to be recorded. Rule 17 stated that, quote, the superintendent shall keep a record of all pauper burials on the county farm, file all burial permits, and place a painted and numbered headboard at each grave, which grave shall in no case be less than six feet deep. The burial record shall specify the name of the deceased, date and cause of death, number of burial permit, and the number of the grave in which they were buried. It shall be the duty of the superintendent to see that the cemetery is kept in decent order." Close quote. The first official record by Milwaukee County of a burial on the poor farm grounds was in 1872 for the infant of Rosa Flyman. This burial in 1872 was in the plot of land that would later be designated as Cemetery 1. While Milwaukee County would not begin officially recording records of burials until 1882 with the creation of Cemetery 2, Cemetery 1 was known to already have been in use by 1882. In addition to the burial of Rosa Flyman's infant child, the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors Proceedings in 1878 mentions a cemetery on the poor farm grounds. 
Cemetery 2, which was excavated in 1991-1992, was established in 1882 and was in use until 1925. Two more cemeteries were established while the MCPF complex was in operation. Cemetery 3, which opened in 1925, and Cemetery 4, which is located closest to the Milwaukee County Hospital for the Acute Insane and whose dates are unknown. These three remaining cemeteries, Cemeteries 1, 3, and 4, all remain undisturbed. In 1932, just seven years after Cemetery 2 ceased to be used, the grave markers were removed and a nurse's college was built in its place. While various construction and utility projects disturbed the burial grounds between 1932 and 1991, it was not until 1991 that the graves were actually systematically excavated when the building of a new nurse's residence began. The 1991-1992 excavation of the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery by the cultural resource management firm Great Lakes Archaeological Research Center, Incorporated uncovered 1,649 individuals from Cemetery 2. While the register of burials from the Milwaukee County Poor Farm has survived, due to the lack of grave markers at the time of excavation and the lack of a map accompanying the register of burials, the vast majority of the individuals are still unidentified. The ongoing goal of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee MCPFC project, which is curated by the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Archaeological Research Laboratory, is to identify as many individuals as possible and to restore and retain each individual's personhood. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Science Lab. You can follow The Science Lab on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and pass this along to the teachers, students, and curious friends in your life.